The narrative continues with verse 38. We often don't read these two passages together, but I think they're intended. I think Luke is illustrating in this story something about what it means to love God, the first commandment. So listen to the word of God. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. But few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Probably most of you are aware that in the Jewish tradition, one of the most important, if not as important as the Bible itself, is the teaching of the sages around that. It's collected in a number of different things. You've probably heard of the Mishnah or the Talmud. And the Talmud uh, is something that comes together in two different places, uh, one in the fourth century, one in the sixth century of the Common Era. But the Talmud is different stories about the teachings of the great uh, rabbis. And two of the great rabbis actually were uh, early contemporaries of Jesus. It's theoretically possible Uh, In Luke's Gospel, where it has Jesus as a young boy teaching in the temple and the marvel, you know, that the elders marvel at his wisdom. It's possible, theoretically possible, that the great Rabbi Hillel and Shammai were there. Now, Shammai was a more strict interpreter of the Torah. And sometimes, actually, Jesus agrees with Shammai. Hillel, many of you probably... uh, have come across the Hillel House at universities, well, those are named in honor of this great sage. He tended to have a more gentle, if you would, um, broader interpretation of the Torah. And sometimes Jesus sounds like him. One of the most famous stories about these two rabbis was that there was a Gentile or Roman who came, first of all, to Rabbi Shammai and said, I would like to convert. And if you can, if you can, quote, the whole Torah, while standing on one foot, I will become a Jew. To which Shammai angrily chased him out of the house. Well, then he came to Hillel. And Hillel said this, standing on one foot, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is what the whole Torah is. The rest is only explanation. Go and study it. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like a version of the golden rule, which it is. 
Matter of fact, uh, that famous Rockwell painting, I'm, <laughs> I've talked about this. I don't know if it's here or somewhere else. The sermons sometimes merge in my head. But Rock, uh, uh, Norman Rockwell's famous painting that was at the United Nations uh, was inspired in part by his own study of various religions. And you can find this idea of the, of the golden rule, do unto others, love your neighbor if you would. You can find it in all religions. Matter of fact, you can find it in secular ideas as well. So the Good Samaritan story in some ways is, a, is, an, is an extension of that idea. But as you might suspect with Jesus, it's not quite that simple, right? So, so Luke's version of the story is a little different than um, Matthew and Mark's. In Luke's story, he's identified as a lawyer, a religious lawyer, if you would, and he poses this question to Jesus. Now, it is, a, it is the question of the first century. Probably the, the Jewish version of it would be, uh, Luke is probably is giving us a more Gentile version of it, but how do I inherit a portion of the life to come? Which also means, how can I be part of the people of God? How do I belong to God? How do I get eternal life? What's it mean to be a follower of God? And so in Luke's gospel, Jesus, using a very good Socratic method, turns it around and says, well, how do you read it? And the lawyer answers, you're to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you're right, good answer. Go and do it, and you will live. But here's where it gets twisted. <laughs> it says, seeking to justify himself. If he'd have just walked away, right? And just as an aside, how much energy do we put into trying to justify ourselves? Well, it's my perspective. It's my truth. You don't seem to understand. I blank, 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 right? I will remind you, one of the great potential joys of being a Christian is you don't have to justify yourself. God justifies us. How much psychological energy, baggage goes in us trying to explain ourselves, right? So, anyway, you know the story, it's very familiar. A man's on the road to Jericho. It's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, I've been on the road to Jericho many a times. It's not so, well, it depends on what's going on over there, whether it's dangerous or not, right? But I, I never had any problems on the road to Jericho. But this man is jumped and robbed. An act of violence. Something humans have been all too willing to just... Uh, live with, right? As long as it doesn't happen to me. And you have the story of two religious figures, a priest and a Levite who, who walked by him. Now, I think there's a legitimate argument for not stopping. Okay? I have not stopped frequently in rough parts of cities that I've been around for good reasons, right? 
Because you could say that your first obligation is to take care of yourself, right? And there are times that that might be the moral thing to do. But for Jesus and for the Christian, that's not really a, an option. The Samaritan adhered to a higher law. Now, the fact that he picks a Samaritan for the story, if you want to have any semblance of how this felt if you were hearing this parable for the first time, pick a group that you find utterly obnoxious. Pick a group that, that you feel superior to. You don't have to share this with us. I'm thinking about Baltimore Raven fans right now. <laughs> but we really live in a time where you see, there was a period of time where you weren't supposed to be able to say it out loud who you didn't like. But now we all have these platforms that we can, we can pontificate and feel so much better than whoever we're criticizing, right? right? It's justifying yourself, right? That's a version of justifying yourself, right? And it's funny, the lawyer won't even mention the word Samaritan. Do you notice that in the text? Who was his neighbor? Uh, the lawyer says, well, I guess the one who showed him mercy. See, this is more than loving your neighbor. This is more than the golden rule. Jesus is tying two loves together here. And there's a sense where when he says, or when the lawyer says the one who shows mercy, who's the one that ultimately shows mercy to us? I mean, even when we're merciful to each other, right? That is a function of what? God's mercy, right? When we share the peace of Christ, we're not sharing the peace of Christ because you have the power to offer mercy to each other. It's the peace of Christ, right? Because you are forgiven, you can be a vessel of healing in the world. So the implication here is from Jesus' perspective, to love your neighbor is to love as God loves. St. Teresa of Avila, the great 16th century Spanish um, reformer and teacher says this, the surest way to determine whether one possesses the love of God is to see whether he or she loves his or her neighbor. These two loves are never separated. Rest assured, the more you progress in love of neighbor, the more your love of God will increase. So you would think the way to love God is to primarily serve each other. And I think there's something to that, but it's not quite that simple because that's why we get the Mary and Martha story. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for Martha here. First of all, when Jesus shows up, he just didn't show up by himself. He brought a dirty, hungry bunch of guys with him, right? Mm -hmm. 
So it's just a matter of, uh, okay, we'll just add a cup of water to the soup. No. Jesus shows up, and man, you have, to, you have to kick into high gear here. And we know Martha and Mary and her brother Lazarus, that these were, from John's gospel, these were close friends of Jesus. So it's not a labor of, it's not a burdensome, it's a labor of love, but there's still things to do, right? This Mary-Martha story <coughs> stirs all kinds of things, particularly those of us that have siblings, right? <laughs> right? Okay. And Martha is working hard. You know, she's got, you know, she's, you, we all know those people. I was saying my mom was like a great Martha. She couldn't sit still. So she was always, you know, moving around cooking. If she wasn't cooking, she was cleaning. And, you know, it was just always moving around, right? And suddenly Martha in the middle of being busy, and she's probably really good at this, right? Martha, her name's first. She's the oldest head of the house, most likely, running the house. She looks over, and Jesus is teaching, and Mary is just looking up at him lovingly. And everything she doesn't like about her sister comes to the forefront right there, right? Everything that was wrong with her just flashes. And she feels comfortable enough to go and kind of give Jesus a talking to, right? <laughs> she, we don't often think about her being, she's upset with Mary, but she scolds Jesus. So I, I like that. It shows that she had a familiarity with Jesus that she, could get, she felt she could get away with it. Tell my, tell my sister to do the right thing. If those people, we need to just straighten those people out over there. If we could just straighten them, those people out. I can see Jesus kind of laughing. Martha, Martha, you're, you're, you're worried about so much. She goes, yeah, feeding you. <laughs> and that motley band you hang around with. You're okay, I'm not so thrilled about those other guys. Right? You're just so anxious about so much, Martha. You're trying to do so much good. If we could just get this church working the right way. If we could just be like X. Or we could get back to the old days when we did Y. Martha, there's only one thing required. And Mary's, Mary's figured it out. Appreciate all the good stuff you're doing. Smells good what you're cooking in there. But I'm here. This ultimately is about me and you. Thomas Merton one time said, we are so obsessed with doing that we have no time and no imagination left for being. As a result, Humans are valued not for what they are, but for what they do or what they have, for their usefulness. I mean, that's in part why our society is pagan. The chief way you can tell we're pagan, doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal, you're a pagan in this country. 
because how we value people. How we treat people as commodities. The Christian life consists of doing that is grounded in being. The doing of love of neighbor is grounded in prayer and is rooted in our being and in with God. The love of neighbor to be proper, to be the proper ordered love has to flow from our love for God. At the risk of being simplistic, and what I'm about to say is simplistic. (laughs) The trouble with progressive Christianity is that our love for neighbor and justice, two essential biblical mandates, is not rooted in anything transcendent. It's It's not built off a relationship with the living God. That needs to be the center of the endeavor. The trouble with conservative Christianity in this country is that it has a theoretical idea of who God is and what God requires, but it's divorced from real human beings. You have Christians yelling and shouting for things that are anti-Christ. The fact that in the name of God, individuals are trampled on, vulnerable people are run over, The radical individualism of this country, both on the left and on the right, is literally antichrist. The Christian must not be an independent, but we are a trinity of sorts, where my I, my ego, is connected to the two loves. Who I am is intricately connected with my love for God and my love for my neighbor. No one is an island. You may have your individual experience, your own spirituality, but you are part of the family of God. You're part of the people of God. You belong to God, and therefore you're accountable to your brothers and sisters. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. St. Catherine of Siena had this vision one time. She wanted to devote herself only to her own personal experience of faith. And she heard God say to her, I need you to walk with two feet, the love of God and love all that God loves. So if we're supposed to love what God loves, if we love God and therefore we're supposed to love who God loves, who does God love? Who's your neighbor? A proper love of self is actually anchored and defined by the love of God and neighbor. Martha was not wrong to serve. She was absolutely right to serve. But the task at hand was to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's the most important thing we can do as a fellowship. We must ground ourselves in the love, the redemptive love of God. I remember when I was first working with high school kids, there was all, and it was a conservative part of the country, and there was all this talk about how secular humanists had taken over the schools. And I was trying to help this kid from the projects. He was such a good kid. 
And he was trying to be better. And he made one mistake and the whole system crashed on top of his head. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the office trying to get a meeting with a social worker or a principal. And, and, and they're just, everything is just, they're just running over this kid. And I remember, I was so frustrated. I pounded on the table and said, where is there a secular humanist when I need that? <laughs> I need someone to care for this kid. Well, the power of the gospel is that because you know that you are loved and forgiven by God, that you are precious in the eyes of God, that sets us free to care about the other. It sets us free to look with the eyes of God to people around us. Not so we can feel good about ourselves to change the world. But because in the eyes of the poor, in the person in need, in the broken man on the side of the road, in the underfed, in the underserved, or the person who may be quite well off financially, but are full of poverty and death inside them. They are our neighbor, but they're more than our neighbor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, as long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor. As the one through whom God calls you, speaks to you, makes demands of you. That is the great seriousness and great blessedness of the message of Christ. Christ is standing at the door. He lives in the form of the human beings among us. You might be familiar, it's, it, it is a Christmas song as well, but the Celtic rune of hospitality, this old poem, I saw a stranger yesterday. I put food in the eating place, drink in the drinking place, music in the listening place, and in the sacred name of the triune, he blessed myself and my house, my cattle, and my dear ones. And the lark sang in her song, often, often, often goes Christ in a stranger's guise. <clears throat> to love God is to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor as a Christian is to see the face of Christ in those around us. Our prayer must be rooted in activism. Our activism must be an expression of our love for the God who not only came to us, but who died for us. But because he's alive, the resurrection hope is that we have the courage to go out and stop for the stranger, for the broken. That we can love out of the overflow that God has given us, not trying to justify ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On, the, on your bulletin, the left hand over here. I invite you to join with me in the law of Christ. This is Galatians 6.2 and John 13 put together. You may stay seated. Let's say this together. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. Let's continue our worship by giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings.
signs and symbols of our love to you and our commitment to care for this world, this church, this community. We give all you in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Realize how much you love us. Maybe prayers are an expression of knowing that you care. Even if we don't feel it or see it. As we seek us, help us to be reassured that we're not alone. And your celebration for new beginnings. Give us this day our daily bread, and 
And when it's not, it's 